Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves For it was not the season for figs, and he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed By in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. This is the word of the Lord. You know I love you, right? That's a phrase that has inadvertently become almost like my signature, it seems. In fact, I was talking to my wife uh, as we recently went on a little bit of a trip, and uh, I asked her, I said, if I was to ever create a T-shirt with a quote on it, right, uh, you know, of something that I said, that something that people would remember, you know, that they would know it was from me, what would that be? Because there, have, there are preachers that, that we know, there are preachers that I listen to that say, have said certain things that we just remember them by. You just say the quote, we know who it came from. I mean, Vody Bauckham, one of the things that you almost always hear him say is, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch, right? That's just one of the things he says, right? And then Paul Washer, once in probably the most famous sermon of his, I mean, one of the most listened to sermon in the entire world, as he was talking to a group of people who were cheering and clapping about what he said about sin and about Christ, he says, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you, right? I mean, it was, it was a hard-hitting moment. I even have a, I have a sweatshirt that has that actual quote on it. In fact, one time I was here at uh, Boron High School during a baseball game that Carson was playing in, and John MacArthur's son-in-law walked up to me and said, I know exactly where that quote's from. In fact, I just saw Paul Washer just the other day, right? Um, the thing is, is we know our, our, these pastors oftentimes by what they, by what they say. Or how about R.C. Sproul? I have a coffee cup that, that, that says one of his quotes. And in fact, the quote just simply says, what's wrong with you people on it? Now, a lot of people don't know what that means, but there was a, a question and answer you know, at a conference one time where somebody asked a question about the severity of God's punishment against sin. And he, asked, he looks at the crowd and he asks them. In fact, in fact let, me just, let me just share with you, if it'll work, technology is not my friend today, but if it will work, I'd like to share with you a clip and maybe you can actually see the context of what I'm talking about here. So. If God is slow to anger and patient, excuse me, since God is slow to anger... <laughs> We're always learning. Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? Time out. (laughs) Didn't we just have that question a second ago? We did. It's a little little, little nuance. That God's punishment for Adam was so severe. This creature from the dirt (laughs) defied the everlasting holy God. After that, God had said, the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. 
And instead of dying Thanatos that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time. But the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is. And we don't know who we are. The question is, the question is, why wasn't it infinitely more severe? If we have any understanding of our sin and any understanding of who God is, that's the question, isn't it? So when you see my coffee cup, you know exactly what he's talking about now, right? <laughs> um, it's a great quote, and like I said, my wife, she gave me something, you know, for as a Christmas present, a coffee cup that said that. And, uh, and so anyway, so I asked my wife, I said, you know what, I mean, believe me, I'm a small town preacher, you know, and with a small congregation, but really, if, if people who know me were to see a quote on a t-shirt that was attributed to me, what would that be, right? And, and, and I thought my wife would say, you were loved and you were prayed for, right? I mean, that's what I thought she would say, because I say that after every message, and I say that after all of my devotions, because why? Because you are loved and you are prayed for. I mean that. I mean, that's why I say it, right? But I thought that's what, what she would say. But that's not what she said at all. In fact, what she, in fact, she didn't even miss a beat when I asked her. She said, I said, so what would people say, or what, what, what would, you, would you put on a t-shirt? She said, you know I love you, right? <laughs> That's the quote that's gotten stuck to me. That's the quote that's been attributed to me. In fact, the group of pastors that I meet with on a regular basis in Palmdale, thanks to my daughter, McKaylee, um, she actually told them the story about me, me, me saying that. And now every time I see these guys, and every time we start talking about something hard, they look at me and go, hey, you know I love you, right? It's just a, it's a quote that just won't stop coming, right? Everyone knows what I mean when I talk about that. In fact, everyone knows, everyone in here knows, when I say that, you know, I love you, right? The, the reality is, is what we're, what's going to follow typically is something that's going to be difficult, right? Typically when I say that, what's, what's going to follow after that is probably something that's going to be uncomfortable and maybe even a bit painful to hear. But everyone also knows that when I say that, that they know that what's going to come afterwards is the truth, because sometimes the truth is difficult. Sometimes the truth is very unpleasant. Sometimes the truth is hard to hear. But regardless of that, we must always declare and always be willing to hear the truth. Because why? It's the truth. And as Christians, we must always stand for the truth and embrace the truth and love the truth, even when the truth hurts. Because the most loving thing that you can do for another human being is to tell them the truth. And the most hateful thing that you can do to someone is to deny the truth. So hear me. If you love someone, tell them the truth. So you know I love you, right? I don't know if you realize it or not, but my approach to preaching has been that I've, been growing, that I've grown into over the last several years is to take any text of scripture and to take it and exposit it for you and to, to share with you what the text itself has to say. The term for that is called expository preaching. And my aim is to take each and every passage of scripture and each and every verse of scripture and every, ver every phrase and every word and to study it and to the best of my ability to understand every small part of it in the light of its original context. And to take that understanding and then present it to you. And my aim is to take my feelings, my personal feelings, and my preconceived ideas, and my upbringing, and my assumptions about the world and how things work, and even my own traditions, and take those things and set those things aside in order to come to the text with a clear mind in an effort to understand what the author of the text actually wrote and what he meant by what he wrote. 
I want to understand what the author meant by what he wrote, not what I think that he meant. My aim is not to give you my personal opinion. My aim is to present to you the word of God, what it actually says, because the truth that I understand is this. What what I think about the text, what I feel about the text, is absolutely irrelevant. It is. My personal opinions about what the text says is irrelevant. My personal you know, preferences and perspectives are irrelevant. The only thing that is relevant, the only thing that matters is what God is actually saying in his word because I believe that's exactly what it is. It is his word. It is not mine. And so my approach to preaching is to do everything in my power to rely on proven Bible study methods and the leading of the Holy Spirit to present to you what God himself is saying through his word. My goal is to give to you the truth even when the truth is difficult, even when the truth is hard to hear. And that goal then drives how I study the text. I'm going to share a little bit of my world with you that maybe you don't see from where you're sitting. But I read each text over and over and over and over again. And then I take the text and I write it out and I diagram the text. And I ask the questions of how does this phrase connect with that phrase? And, and how, does, how does that verb connect with the subject? And what is the object of the sentence? I do word studies in order to find the range of meanings of every word that I can and, and, and try to understand those things in their context. I look at even at original languages. Thanks to tools like Blue Letter Bible, I have access to, to, the, to the Greek and, and Hebrew texts themselves. And I have tools that will actually help me to be able to see what those words mean. I also read several commentaries on every text. In fact, a big part of my library, as my, my daughter can attest to you, um, is, is Bible commentaries. I have commentaries on every book of the Bible by, by, by world-renowned scholars and theologians. And I try to understand every text within the flow of a larger text. I ask the question, is how does this fit in with the overall narrative of the book? And then how does that text fit in with the overall flow of Scripture itself? Because I'm going to tell you, every Scripture has to be squared with the overall narrative of, of the entire Bible. If you have a Scripture that does not fit the overall Bible, then you don't understand it correctly. Each text must be squared with the Scripture itself. And I continually think about it, and I meditate on it, and, and, and not to mention all the notes and the diagrams I create. i got a stack of notes for this series since we began that high. Right, that's the stuff that I actually kept. You see, my desire is not to make you like me, even though I want you to like me. Right? My desire is not to, to get you to think that I'm a nice guy, even though that underneath I, I am, hopefully. My goal is not to get you to think that I'm funny or understanding, but I do get encouragement when you laugh at my jokes. My desire is not to make you feel better about yourself, though I do want that, right? right? But my desire is not those things. My desire, my true one desire as a preacher of the Word of God is to honor God and to love you to the best of my abilities by always unashamedly telling you the truth even when the truth is hard to hear. So I will say to you one more time, you know I love you, right? Okay. So here's the truth. Jesus is Lord, that he is the king. That is the truth. And what we have saw a few weeks ago is that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, fulfilling prophecy and openly declaring for all the world to see that he is in fact the king. As we talked about, Jesus is not some soon-to-be king, and that we're not waiting for him to become king, that he is already, right now, in this moment, the king. And he is the sovereign, reigning king. He reigns right now, and he is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over all of creation. He is sovereign over all the nations. He is sovereign over individuals. He is sovereign over history. He is sovereign over the future. And he is sovereign over the coronavirus. And he's sovereign even over the unrest that plagues our nation today. Jesus is the undisputed, unmitigated, sovereign reigning king. And that is the backdrop of this text that we're looking at here today. 
And what we talked about last week is the fact that Jesus coming into Jerusalem is the turning point for this entire narrative. Because at this point in the story, what we see is that Jesus was wildly popular with, you know, with, with the crowds, and people were excited to see him and to be near him, and they were, that the city was electric with, with jubilation, with the anticipation of the king coming to the capital of Israel. But as Brother David noted last week, that within a span of less than a week, the crowd's cheers for the king became shouts of condemnation demanding his crucifixion. The same entourage that that escorted him in the city would become the lynch mob demanding him to be killed. So what changed? What happened to cause the dramatic turnaround? Well, Well, this text actually is the turning point. You see, the Jews had a picture of what the king was supposed to be like. And they imagined that this king would be coming into Jerusalem in order to ascend to David's earthly throne. And that he would lead a military uh, rebellion against the Roman Empire. And that he would drive out all of Israel's oppressors. That's what they expected. And they expected that he would restore Israel's earthly kingdom. And he would once again help them to be a world superpower. That's what their aspirations were. That's what they believed he was for. That's exactly what they expected out of him. In fact, his own disciples actually believed the very same thing. That's what they were struggling with. That's why we saw, as we unpacked for, uh, for several weeks, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, that the disciples were spiritually blind. Right? That whole section was about that same point, that Jesus talking about his death and resurrection was lost on them. He plainly taught them that he would be handed over by the Jews to the Gentiles, that he would be killed, and then three days later that he would, he would raise again. And his own disciples just wouldn't believe what he was saying. They just couldn't fathom or understand what he was saying because they were so stuck on this idea. And like the rest of the Jewish world, they were expecting Jesus to be this military hero who would then set Israel free from their oppressors. But instead of that, what is the first thing the king does when he comes to his kingdom? He comes and he demonstrates not his love for Israel, but rather his wrath against Israel, his judgment against Israel. And that's what we talked about two weeks ago, the wrath of the king. This was an unexpected development because throughout the Gospel of Mark, what we have seen over and over again is Christ's love and his patience and his grace and his mercy. We've seen it over and over again, and miracle after miracle, Jesus patiently enduring. But in this text, we see the other side of his divine nature. We see his wrath, his wrath against the religious elites and the nation of Israel itself. But what we see in this text is the side of Jesus that many people don't even want to talk about today. This is the side of Jesus that people just want to hide from. What we see in this text is the side of Jesus that, that people either want to ignore or just simply completely deny. Everyone wants to, to talk about the, the Jesus that's loving. Everybody wants to appeal to the Jesus that's long-suffering. Everyone wants to be the close to the Jesus that's gracious. Everybody loves the Jesus that does miracles that are beneficial for people. But so many people want to deny and even crucify the Jesus who pours out his wrath and his judgment on those who deserve it. So in many respects, some things never have even changed. The world rejects Christ the same way they did then. That's just why this text has been misinterpreted by so many over so many decades. That's why people say about this text that Jesus actually isn't really omnipotent and that he's just acting like a spoiled brat here. He's not even perfect. He's not even divine. That's why so many people will look at this text and say, oh, this is about the prosperity gospel because it says, Jesus says, if you'll just pray and you believe, then you'll get whatever you ask for. This is why people say that this text is about Jesus being angry with business people buying and selling in the temple, that he's angry with, with people's greed and he's angry with people you know, making a profit and getting rich, which, by the way, are very popular topics today in our culture. Everybody hates the rich, except those who want to be rich, which is everybody, right? It's kind of a weird 
But this text right here isn't about those things. This text is about the wrath of Jesus in that moment. But it's also a picture of the wrath that's going to come as we, as we talked about. But this text is also about the foundation of his wrath. And the foundation of that wrath is his judgment against sin. Because Jesus not only came to save, he's also come to judge. Which is what we're going to talk, what we're going to look at this week. That's why I've titled this message, The Judgment of the King. Because not only is Christ the King, and not only is He the Savior, but He is the one who will judge. And before we get to the text, let me just divert your attention just quickly, briefly, to Revelation 19. I want you to see that I'm not just talking about this and making this up. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And it says, And in righteousness he judges and makes war. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. It says he's clothed in in a robe dipped in blood, and his name, which is called, is the Word of God. So is there any question about who this is? Who is the righteous judge? It is Christ himself. And it says, The armies of heaven arrayed in fine living, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which it's to strike down the nations, and will, he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of all God Almighty on his robe and on his right thigh. He has a name. King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no question. Christ is the one who will come to judge. He is the king. And, and that is what we see in the text here. So now with that in mind, turn with me to Mark chapter 11. And let's look at verse 12. On the following day, when they came to Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree, he went to see if he could find anything on it, but he came to it. He found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then in verse 20, we see the, the culmination of this. It says, And they passed by in the morning, and they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. As we talked about two weeks, two weeks ago, that what is happening here is not that Jesus is angry because he's hungry and couldn't get what he wants. He's not hangry, okay? That's not the point. How many of you guys get hangry from time to time? You know what hangry is, right? Hangry and, uh, angry and hungry at the same time? Okay. This is not what he's talking about here. Right? Jesus didn't curse the tree because he was upset because there was no fruit on it. Right? What's happening here is Jesus is using his hunger, his desire for something, and the fig tree to act out a living, visible parable to make a point. Jesus uses this opportunity to visually illustrate a foundational point to his followers. As we said last week, the point is this. Those who do not bear fruit when the king comes are cursed. That's the point. When, when the king comes, those who do not have, have not borne any fruit will be cursed. That's why we talk about the fruit of repentance. That's why we talk about the fruit of the spirits. That's why we talk about this Christians, right? Is our profession just words or, or has Christ actually regenerated us? Have we really been born again? Is our lives a living testimony of that? We're not saved by what we do but we're saved by grace through faith. But, but those who are saved by grace through faith will have lives that begin to bear that fruit. When the king comes, those who do not have fruit will be cursed. Jesus the king comes to the tree, finds it beautiful on the outside. It's full of leaf, but, but it's without fruit, the fruit for which it was planted in the first place. And Jesus pronounces judgment on the tree. He curses it. And, and the next day, they see the tree again. And it's utterly destroyed by the word of Christ. 
Jesus is making a devastating point through this living parable, a point that we all, as Christians, should pay attention to. But understand, Jesus didn't do this simply to make a a general point. I mean, we can certainly apply this point generally. This isn't just about not being fruitful. Jesus actually has a specific point he's making here as well. And the specific point is about Israel at that time. Jesus did this to let these disciples know that he was going to judge Israel for their lack of fruits. And that's the first thing he does as the king. You talk about an unexpected twist and turn in the story. He does not come to Jerusalem you know, as the king to reign over Israel as a, as a physical nation, he comes as the king to judge Israel for being unfruitful. I'm going to tell you, no one actually saw that coming. This was not at all what they were expecting. And if you don't think that this is about Israel, look at the imagery in the text. What Jesus does here with the fig tree would have immediately taken the disciples back to the Old Testament. They would have seen the imagery and connected the dots to the Old Testament because the fig tree has been a picture of Israel throughout the Scriptures. And the cursing of the fig tree has a direct connection to several Old Testament passages that are about the judgment of Israel. In fact, let me just share with you a few of them. And for those of you who want... My technology failed me today. Forgive me. But for those of you who want the actual like written down scripture references, let me know. I'll email you all of them so that you can study them in your own time. But the first one is Micah chapter 7, verse 1. And it says, For woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, and there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. They would have immediately made this connection. And then you have Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there, were, there are no grapes on the vine or no figs on the tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from the earth. Again, they would have seen this connection. Or Hosea chapter 9 verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel. Like the first fruits of the fig tree in its first season. I saw your fathers. But they, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame. And became detestable like the thing that they loved. And then in verse 16 and 17 of Hosea chapter 9. Ephraim is stricken to their is stricken, their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit, even though that they give birth. I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wonders among the nations. I'm telling you, the first century Jews who would have heard this account and saw this text in Mark would have immediately understood that Jesus, was what he was doing with the fig tree was about the judgment of the nation of Israel at that time. Again, talk about a turn of events. Jesus came not to... He has the, came, is the king not to take up his earthly throne... And, to, and, and not to lead a rebellion, but he came to pronounce judgment on those who were supposed to be his people, who were not doing what they were called to do, who were not bearing the fruit that they were supposed to be bearing, the fruit that they were created for. And the incident with the tree is a prophetic parable that clearly illustrates this. And how does Israel respond then to this judgment? You know the rest of the story. You know how they responded. They're going to turn on him and they're going to kill him. That's how they responded. Not in repentance. That's what was the call all the time in the Old Testament is when they they were cursed because of, of their iniquity, the call was to repentance and they would repent and what would happen again? Then God would bless them again. And then they would rise up and then they would fall back into sin over and over again. But how, is it, how do they respond to Christ's judgment of them? It's not repentance. It's what? They turn to him and kill him, further vindicating his judgment. By the way, this is the theme of Christ. 
that he talks about over and over again, this judgment against Israel, is going to be repeated throughout chapter 12 and 13. These are the things that you're going to see again. You see, the truth is Jesus didn't come to set Israel free. He came, he came to bring salvation to the world, but he also came to judge this fruitless nation. He didn't come to become the king of Israel. He came to to become the king of the entire world. That's the point that was lost on them. That's why they were fruitless. And that's the framework for us understanding what happens in the temple. Because otherwise, if you don't understand that framework, if you don't have that sense of his judgment, then what's going to happen is you're going to take this text and you're going to try to figure out what's what's going on here because it doesn't make any sense. What you're going to end up with is is simply Jesus is mad at people buying and selling in his church. That's what you're going to end up with. But that's not at all what this text is about. So turn with me again to verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. This is a very dramatic display. This is explosive, right? This is like, you know, somebody coming into the, like the, to the mall at AV and just start kicking tables over and knocking over the kiosks, right? I mean, people would get pretty excited pretty fast. This was, again, another unexpected turn of events because throughout Mark, what we see, what do we see in Jesus? This gentle, right, patient, calm Jesus. But now we see angry, passionate Jesus imposing his will physically on people. He's physically forcing people out of the temple. He is flipping over tables. This is quite a public spectacle. But understand, this is on purpose. Jesus is doing this publicly to draw everyone's attention to why he is judging Israel. This is a public spectacle to point to why he's judging them. And it's not, again, because they're buying and selling in the temple. And it's not because people are making a profit. Jesus is making a public spectacle because like the fig tree, they were not producing and bearing the fruit that they were created for. The the fruit that Jesus had come for. What is this fruit that he's come for? Well, the answer is, is, is right here in verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. This is the heart of the issue right here. This is the verse that you have to understand. This busy swap meet, this busy marketplace, this hub of activity and noise, has been set up and is taking place, not simply on the temple grounds, but in the court of the Gentiles. In the place for the Gentiles to worship. This is the place where the rest of the world, besides the Jews, were to come and to be near God and to worship God. This is the place where Israel was to lead worship for the rest of the world of the holy and righteous, just creator of all things. This is where Israel was supposed to be leading the world to God. You see, the thing that we have to understand is God didn't create Israel simply to just be his people. He created them for a purpose. And that purpose was to be a light for the rest of the world. God didn't create Israel for Israel. He rescued Israel for the rest of the world. It's the same thing when it comes to being a Christian, by the way. God didn't save you for you. Yes, you benefit from that, absolutely. Your hope is in that, absolutely. But he didn't save you for you. He saved you for a purpose. And that purpose is to join him on his mission to bring salvation to the rest of the world. It's the same issue. Christians today are getting into political fights in their self-centeredness, thinking that they're going to solve the world's problems politically. But Christians have... We're not here to solve the world's problems. I want you to hear me on that. We're not here to solve the world's problems. I'm not saying that we shouldn't seek justice and work hard and and meet people's needs. But we're, we're not here to solve everyone's problems. Because guess what? 
We can't. Because the problems you solve today will be problems tomorrow for somebody else. The people that you benefit over here will be at the expense of somebody else over here. That is just the way this sinful world works. We were saved not to solve the world's problems. We were saved to be a light of the world. We were saved to bring the nations to God. And so was Israel. In fact, that's why the nation itself was created. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Oftentimes we, in our look at the Old Testament, we miss the missionary purpose of Israel. We get caught up in their failures that we forget that they were supposed to be a missionary people. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make, you, make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, what? All families of the earth shall be blessed. We get caught up on the, the blessings and the curses because of what's happening with Israel today, but we forget this part right here, in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. Israel was not created so they could simply live as God's people for eternity. They were created to usher in the kingdom of God. They were created to draw the nations to God. God's plan has always been about the world. Israel was supposed to be a light for the world. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 6. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for what? The nations. It could also be Gentiles. Is what another way to say that. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, he says, is it, too, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Israel was never meant to be an isolationist country that shunned other nations. Israel was never meant to be set apart simply just to be only God's people and no one else. They were set apart and were created to invite the Gentiles to God. God's salvation was to go throughout the world. It has always been about the world. When Jesus came and he talked to Nicodemus, notice he didn't say, for God so loved Israel that he gave his only son. He said, for God so loved the world. Again, in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 10 says, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And Isaiah 60, verse 3, to wrap this part up. And the nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. This is what they were raised up for. This is what Israel was created for. This was the fruit that Jesus was looking for. And this is the fruit that he didn't find in them. And when Jesus comes to the city, riding on the, on the back of this donkey, declaring by his actions that he's the Messiah and the King, the first stop that he makes is where, if you remember? It's the Temple Mount in the evening. And what does he find? Not the fruit of Israel that he was create, they were created for. What he finds is blatant hypocrisy. The very place that was supposed to be where the world comes to worship God and pray to God was hijacked by the ones that were supposed to be the light of the nations. And they hijacked this space. And so the Jews, then the reason why they did so is so they could have the convenience of appearing righteous because now they have their kosher little animal that they can bring as their spotless sacrifice and they can give their financial offering with the right currency all fulfilling the external, visible letter of the law, all the while spitting on the spirit of the law and failing to do what they were created for. 
They wore the full fig tree in leaf. They looked good on the outside. The Sanhedrin had their garbs, and, and from the outside they looked beautiful. Even the temple itself, as, they, as, as we will see later on in the text, as the apostles will appeal to Jesus, look how beautiful this stuff is. And he says, it's not going to stand. They had this external appearance of righteousness, but they had no fruit. They were hypocrites all the way to the bone. This was what Jesus was drawing their attention to, and this is what Jesus is drawing our attention to. The nation was supposed to be a light for the world, was consumed by its arrogance and by its rituals and by its vanity and self-righteousness, all the while declaring themselves to be the people of God. Jesus was, was right to judge them. He was just to judge them. In fact, justice demanded that he judge them. And judge them he did. Now understand, some people will actually, because of their theological commitments, will look at this and say, well, this isn't about him judging Israel. This is about him judging the religious leaders and the Sanhedrins. It's really a popular narrative today, is that, you know, you know, that Jesus' judgment is only reserved for certain groups of, of people you know, that are in power. But the problem is that's not the, the context here. And, and history doesn't back that up. The Sanhedrin were certainly guilty, but so were the Israelites were guilty as a nation. It was their culture to divide themselves from the rest of the world. It was their culture to look down their self-righteous noses at the rest of the world. I mean, one of the first problems that plagued the early church, if you read the New Testament, you will see it was this sense of superiority that the Jews felt towards the Gentiles. In fact, that was the point of Paul's letter to the Galatians, is because there were Jewish people claiming to be Christians who were going around to the churches saying, you can't even be, a, you can't even be saved unless you turn into a Jew. Like You can't even have a relationship with Christ unless you become a Jew. And so Paul wrote this letter to deal with this issue. Right? And this division began to infect the early church at almost every level. Even Peter himself, at some point, and many of the apostles, began to fall into this sin. Paul actually, if you read Galatians, will, will find out that he actually rebuked Peter and reminded him that the gospel is for everyone as they are. Jews and Gentiles alike. All people stand equal at the cross. And so the Israelite, as a nation, were just as culpable as their religious leaders. They were not bearing the fruit that they were called to bear either. And so Jesus judged them, and his judgment was complete. Because his judgment and his curse was against the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, it was against the temple itself, and it was also against Israel. That is the imagery of the fig tree. And again, that judgment was complete to the root that's what happened in history, by the way. The Christ, the Messiah, did not set Israel free from their Roman oppressors. No one set them free. Actually, the oppression grew worse after the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. It continued to grow worse, even as the church began to grow and explode and have all kinds of momentum around the world. This oppression against Israel continued to grow. This oppression grew to the point that it brought around the fifth Jewish revolt against Rome, which was a four-year insurrection of the Jewish people against the Romans. And this resulted in the siege of Jerusalem led by General Titus under the leadership of Emperor Vespasian. And this culminated in the destruction, the complete destruction of the city of the king and the temple when King, well not King, but General Titus broke through the wall in AD 70. And Christ's words about the temple were literally filled to the detail, fulfilled to the detail. And the slaughter of those inside of Jerusalem was beyond horrific, as the scholars record the capital of Israel, the symbol of her relationship with God, the temple, were utterly destroyed and the inhabitants of this one great nation were slaughtered wholesale and then scattered abroad. And the Sanhedrin had to flee. And they ended up in Galilee years later, but never having the same power or authority ever again 
that they once enjoyed. Christ's judgment and Israel's hypocrisy and their lack of fruit was, was righteous and just. His judgment was just. And his curse upon them, like the fig tree, came to pass because Christ is the reigning sovereign king. That is what this text is about. But let this text be a warning to us all. My heart has been so heavy as of late. The United States of America at this point has become the greatest nation in all of history. This is undeniable. There has never been a nation more affluent, more powerful, and culturally influential than the United States of America. And we know for a fact that it is by God's divine sovereignty because it is God alone who raises nations and it is God alone who tears them down. And God, by the counsel of his will, for some reason, saw fit to create a nation from its humble beginnings as pilgrims simply wanted to come to a place to worship God according to their consciences in freedom. And the United States of America has been an instrument in the hand of God to bless the entire world. The United States has been a light for the rest of the world. It has been a beacon of hope and freedom for two centuries. And God has sovereignly used our country to create a worldwide revival and to launch missions to every corner of the globe. The United States has, of America has been the greatest, has had the greatest impact on the gospel mission in the world. We have sent more missionaries, more places than anyone else in the world. And God has used several denominations in the United States to beat back the tide of theological liberalism that has swept across Europe that is destroying the church as we speak on that continent. A liberalism that has actually threatened the church here and has even consumed entire denominations as we see the church going backwards. But God has used denominations like the Southern Baptist Convention and Reformed Baptist and Independent Baptist and Orthodox Presbyterians and other conservative non-denominational Christian groups to push back this assault on the inerrancy of our scriptures and the sovereignty of God and the assault on the divinity of Christ. The United States of America was created by God to glorify God and to spread the hope of Christ. It was, it was created to be a light of the world. That is why he rose us up out of obscurity and blessed us. Like Israel was. It was a light for some time. Like Israel was. Now our country has never been perfect. I don't think any historian would ever even say that. No human being has ever been ever perfect besides Christ's. We've had our flaws. Some of our flaws have been deep and egregious. But you cannot deny that the favor of God has rested on our country, has been evident throughout the decades. And our nation has been fruitful for the cause of Christ. Brothers and sisters, as a nation just like Israel, though, we have turned away from our first love. We are spurning His grace. We are spurning his mercy. Our culture is openly spitting on the face of Christ. We become a nation that is the leading, that's leading the world in, in the production and the consumption of pornography. We're a nation that is embracing every conceivable deviant lifestyle. And we're not only embracing it, but we are celebrating it. We as a nation are systematically, we have dismantled the family. You know what the root of the problem is right now? Is the dismantling of the family. We as a nation have financially rewarded the destruction of the family. And we celebrate regularly the destruction of God's ordained institution of marriage, which is between a man and a woman. We as a nation have handed our children over to Caesar to educate them five days a week while we invest time and money and energy and every manner of, of extracurricular activity like sports, all the while we fail to disciple our own children, thinking that an hour and a half on Sunday morning should be sufficient enough to turn them into Christ followers. 
We as a nation have systematically rejected the truth. We have openly and fully embraced postmodern thought that teaches that truth is relative and that, there, that truth no longer has to correspond to reality. We're a country that doesn't believe the scientific facts that a woman is a woman and a man is a man and that a baby is a baby, no matter how small. We're a country that believes that the greatest thing that a woman can aspire to is to be just like a man. We're a country that does not value the role of mothers. We're a country that does not value the, the, the role of, of a woman that, that, who is a wife and a homemaker and decides that's what she wants to do by her own will. We believe we do not value women as the stabilizing and foundational force of the family, by extension, the foundational force of our entire society. We as a nation, we embrace the idea that loving someone means that you have to agree with them even when they're in error or they're living a lie. And we believe that disagreement with an idea or somebody's value is the same thing as hating someone personally. We believe that lying to someone is, is loving them and telling them the truth, the, the hard truths, is, is tantamount to hatred and hate speech. We're a nation of absolute depravity. Look at our movies, mainstream television, literature, and music. They all celebrate deviant sexual behavior and infidelity. And the most popular genres of music with the young people today endorse the degrading and subjugation of women as objects of pleasure. We as a nation are a nation of excess. We have more resources than any other nation in the world. And we have people who have homes and roofs over their heads and air conditioners and cars and TVs and game consoles and cell phones and enough disposable income to buy alcohol, drugs, and ink for their skin. But they will line up to consume the free food that's given out in every community. And we'll pretend that people are starving to death in our country, all the while there are people in other countries that are literally starving to death. We are a nation who will fill up entire stadiums and arenas to listen to a prosperity preacher who will tell you that Christ died so you can live your best life now and that you can be healthy, wealthy, and happy if you'll just believe and have enough faith and sow a big enough seed in that offering plate. And we, like Israel at one time in its history, we have become a nation that worships the God of Molech, Child sacrifice in the name of having a better life is alive and well in America today. Since 1972, there have been 62 million children who have been murdered by their parents and medical staff in abortion clinics all across our country. 62 million children that are exterminated. I don't know if you understand how big that number is. You take the population of California and the population of Texas, and that's just a little bit more than that. You think about those two states being wiped off the map completely. That is what we've lost since 1972 by our own hands. The population of Kern County is 900,000, so you multiply that times 69. That's the number of children that have been slaughtered. And right now, this very moment, what is, it the, what is the mantra that we hear on the streets over and over again? Black lives matter. Let me tell you, black lives do matter, but not to the people that are shouting it, because I'm going to tell you right now, 400,000 black children a year, 400,000 little babies are exterminated every year in abortion, minute, in abortion mills. Almost half a million black lives savagely and brutally destroyed. It's almost half the population of our county. But nobody ever sees the video of their death. Nobody hears their cry from mama. And nobody says, say their name, because they don't have a name. They're not even given the dignity of being called human. 
The single greatest killer of black lives in our nation right now is the abortion complex that is supported by major corporations that all of us spend money at. That we can't even, we can't even help. Our nation... Our nation's hands are stained with the blood of our own children. And to make it worse, we're exporting it all to other nations. We're exporting the pornography. We're exporting third wave feminism. We're exporting cultural Marxism. We're exporting the selfishness and the sexual immorality of our country. We're exporting racism and class warfare. We're exporting the prosperity gospel. And we're exporting the practice of child sacrifice. We are no longer a light of the world. We're a pariah to the world. We are self-righteous like these Jews that were standing in the courts of the Gentiles, completely lost in their own vanity and their own hypocrisy. And when we look around, we see what's happening in our country and the way that our country is consuming itself from the inside out. We have the audacity to ask, what's happening? What's happening? What's happening is the judgment of God is against us. Can we not see that? We're the greatest superpower in the entire world with no external threats that can defeat us. But we are at this moment right now are on the verge of total cultural collapse at the best, if not a civil war at the worst. Look what's happening. We're not being defeated by an external military with, with, with armaments. We're being defeated by emotions and rhetoric and, and outright lies. And we're all too busy beating each other up to see it. The hand of God is against us because of our sin. Our sin is horrible. What kind of arrogance would it be for us to say, to look at the, how God repeatedly judged the nation of Israel for our sin and think that he's not going to do the same for us? God used external and internal forces repeatedly to judge Israel throughout history. And he has judged every nation that has ever risen to prominence on the world stage because he will not share his glory with anyone. What makes, him, what makes us think that we're immune to his wrath and his judgment? Because we're the most enlightened culture to ever exist? But it's worse than that. Because the church in America has lost her way. Right now, churches are, are lining up on both sides of the issue. And they're convinced the only way to solve their problems are through, is through elections and legislature. Now, I'm not saying elections don't matter, but I'm going to tell you that is not the solutions to our problems, and neither is activism. But you're going to hear Christians on the right, they're, they're going to swear, and they're going to stand up and scream that if Donald Trump is not elected president, then America is finished. And you're going to have Christians on the left who are going to say that if Joe Biden is not elected president... Right? That America is going to be finished. But I want you to hear me. If our nation doesn't repent of its sin and turn to the gospel and return to God in faith, we are finished. Our hope is not elections. Our hope isn't more laws. Our hope isn't demonstrations. Our hope is not Antifa. Our hope is not cultural Marxist groups disguised as social justice movements. Our hope isn't the vaccine for COVID-19. Our hope isn't face masks and, and social distancing. Our hope isn't more stimulus money. Our hope isn't even the end of world hunger. The only hope, the only hope for the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only hope we have is revival. The only hope for the world is for the church to wake up and take up its arms and storm the gates of hell. Church, we are the instrument that God has ordained to defend and to declare the gospel. We are the pillar and the buttress of the truth. We are the instrument that God has ordained to mobilize his disciples for the Great Commission, 
Because that's what it's been about. The Great Commission. To go and make disciples of all the nations. It never will be. It never has been about us. It has been about everyone else. It's been about the world. But we, like our country, have become apathetic. And we have become soft. And we have become comfortable and selfish. Having an external righteousness. We call ourselves Christians. But are we bearing any fruit for the kingdom? Remember the call of Christ. The call of Christ is not to get saved and attend church once a week and maybe give a little bit and write scriptures on Facebook and then get mad when somebody says happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. The call of Christ, as he says in Mark chapter 1, verse 17, is follow me. And that's followed up by 8.34 where he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Church, the time is now for us to rise to the occasion. The darkness has dawned. It is time for us to deny ourselves in whatever capacity that might be. Whether it is for we deny ourselves money, or resources, or opportunities, or that early retirement that we're so hoping for. It's time for us to deny ourselves, and it's time for us to pick up our crosses and willingly suffer for the cause of Christ and get busy following Jesus. Because that is what you've been called to. This is a war. We in America have been shielded from this war for so long. Paul talks about the war over and over again. He talks about the armaments. He talks about who we're wrestling against. This is a war for the world. This is a war for your children and your grandchildren. This is a war for the souls of men. And the only question you need to ask yourself is will you stand up with me? And will you fight this war? Let us pray. Lord, I am but a meager, broken, pathetic sinner. I am so weak, Lord. But my hope is not in me. My hope is in you. Lord, my desire above all things is for you to be glorified. My desire above all things is to lift you up. My desire above all things in the smallest possible way that I can is to be fruitful for your kingdom and share with your people the truth of your word, Lord. Father, I pray that you would create revival in this church. That you would raise up our hearts, Lord, to heaven. That you would convict us, Lord God, of where we're falling short. That you would help us to not talk to talk, but walk to walk that we would stop dividing ourselves against one another, but that we would be united under the banner of Christ. And that we would understand that the only solution to the world's problems is the gospel. Otherwise, we just have sinful men in a sinful world coming up with half-hearted, broken solutions. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would change all of our hearts right now, that you would give us a passion for the gospel, and that we would go out into the world, and that we would storm the gates of hell. And yes, Father, help us, Lord, to rest in your grace. That though my heart is broken right now, my heart still rejoices, because I know who holds me. And I know that even now, in the midst of the darkness, you still give good gifts to people the love of our friendships, the love of our families, the health that we have, the sun that's shining, the birds that are chirping, even now in the midst of this darkness and chaos, Lord, you continue to pour out your grace upon the world around us. 
Father, your love is so unfathomable, I can't even relate to it sometimes. But Father, I don't have to understand, I just have to rest in it, and that's what I'm doing. And I pray that all of us would do that, and that we would come to the place where we are courageous enough to go out into the world and tell our neighbors and our friends and our family about Jesus Christ. And we would call them, Lord, to repent and believe the gospel, that we would sow the seed, that we would love the people, that we would pray that you would change their hearts and never give up on them. Father, I pray that your will be done in our community and in our church and that you be glorified in all of our lives. We give you all the praise. We give you all the honor. And we give you all the glory. And where I am deficient as a preacher, Father, let your word have its effect, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You, I apologize for the tears, okay? I can't help it. That's just who I am. You are loved, and I mean it with all my heart. You are loved, and you are prayed for, and we hope to see you soon. You're dismissed. Grace and peace. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.